0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week. And this week we ask the important questions. Who invented butter chicken?
1: If you were to ask somebody what their spaghetti bolognese recipe is, every family probably even in Bologna has a different version of this dish that probably goes back centuries and that's really no different with butter chicken.
0: Plus, continuing the food and drink world, we look at the prospects for champagne in 2024. Things like back
2: to champagne, grower champagnes, niche champagnes, expensive products, uh, they are being bought by a younger generation who are really interested.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Hello and welcome to The Curator. We start the show in Canada, looking specifically at transport safety in the country. Sheena Rossiter attended the Canadian Urban Transit Association's annual conference to see how providers are working to improve safety for riders.
3: Crowds mull about in the lobby of a hotel in downtown Edmonton. All these people, well they're here for the Canadian Urban Transit Association Conference. Conversations are being had on some of the biggest issues facing transit across the country and they're wide ranging from getting ridership back up to pre-pandemic levels, to filling the revenue gap, to keeping services running and figuring out how public transit can work alongside housing as Canada suffers an affordability crisis. But what's more pressing right now is safety on transit.
4: I would say a lot of the complexities really came during the pandemic.
3: That's David Cooper, the principal and founder at Leading Mobility. He wrote the national transit safety recommendations that were released on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. He says that a lot of these safety issues developed during the pandemic when transit was one of the few public spaces that remained open.
4: In terms of the opioid crisis, that really became a prolific issue through the pandemic and really started to play out in our public spaces, not just on transit. It also was playing out in our libraries, our parks, our streets. Affordability and just access to housing is now starting to rear its head on this and the ability to have a home and that's really been a critical issue and i think is lending a bit of conversation in this particular space and just general like people have not been in good places during the pandemic and we're seeing some concerns and complexities when it comes to mental health one of the things with public transit which is a great thing about the value of public transit in your community is that we are a safe space we don't turn anyone away but at the same time with being a safe space people will come to our space too and then we have these complexities at hand We don't have the expertise to really address them, but we have to own the issue and work with others to help solve it.
3: So just how serious are safety concerns for Canadians? Let's just look at the numbers. According to a poll conducted by the market research company Ipsos, 27% of Canadians say that they don't feel safe taking public transport alone. In Toronto, the country's largest transit system, where about a million riders take the TTC services per day, that figure rises to about 44%. 31% of those polled say that they're more aware of their surroundings while taking transit. And the concerns aren't unfounded. There have been some violent incidents that are hard to ignore. Last year in Surrey, part of Metro Vancouver, a 17-year-old was stabbed to death on a city bus. In Toronto, a 16-year-old was killed in an unprovoked stabbing at a subway stop. A midday shooting happened on a Calgary city bus. A recent arrival from Ukraine was stabbed at a bus stop in Edmonton. Still, many leaders in Canadian transit, like Carrie Houghton-McDonald, branch manager for Edmonton Transit Service, insists they are working to make the services safe.
5: Transit in Edmonton has been here over 110 years. We confidently, reliably move people across the city for very essential reasons. So I hope that people can see past these isolated, awful incidents and remember that we've been there for them.
3: These incidents are shocking and catch the public attention, but among the over 200,000 riders that use Edmonton Transit Service or ETS during weekdays and the nearly 90,000 passengers on the weekends, the majority of people get to their final destination safely. Post-pandemic, Canadians do interact with transit differently, so transit agencies have had to rethink things. The city of Edmonton has now put 100 peace officers in place to patrol transit stations. Seven different teams are doing proactive outreach for assistance. And a $5 million grant was given to ETS to do traditional targeted measures with the likes of safety information boards, among other strategies. As Kerry Houghton MacDonald puts it, lots of steps are being taken to go beyond issues that are just found on transit
5: because I think it attracts disorder. And I think we'd see knockoff effects where we'd see less disorder. When I say disorder, it's things like property damage. It's vandalism. It's all the little things that just detract and kind of make the space seem like it's not suitable for everyone to be moving through the space to catch their train or their bus. So we have a lot of extra effort in terms of cleaning, in terms of repairs. But I think if we can get to that kind of root cause and provide people with the right social supports so that they're not drawn to transit facilities, we'll see a great improvement.
3: Across the street from the hotel hosting the Canadian Urban Transit Association Conference, the city of Edmonton's new low-floor urban-style LRT train is up and running, and conference goers take a field trip. All
6: right, uh, tour participants, we'll get off the train. We'll probably go out this way
3: here. As the new, busy Valley LRT line snakes through traffic, our guide for this tour, Christian Teal, explains how the new LRT line is working in conjunction with the city's new zoning bylaws and how transportation is part of the city's long-term growth plan.
0: While moving people is a primary purpose, they really want to use this as a tool to
7: drive change in land use and help the city densify and help the city on its journey to becoming a city of two million people.
3: Still, riders are concerned about safety. This is a valley-line train to
8: 100 seconds.
3: On the train platform at the new Davies station, I meet Sheridan Brown. She's in her early 20s, and she uses transit to get around the city. She shares what it's like riding transit in Edmonton right now.
9: There can be, like, a presence of Like a heavier presence of, um, I would say, how
3: do I describe it? Um, She takes a moment to gather her thoughts and gives a diplomatic
9: answer. A lot of interesting people at different (laughs) stations, So it can feel a little scary and then sometimes there's a heavier presence of like peace officers, police officers there, which makes you wonder what's going on, so there's that. I ask her what she would like to see to feel safer on transit. I think there should be intermediate programs that kind of reach out to the people that are roaming around transit stations that make other people feel unsafe. You know, if there is drug use somewhere, if there is just somebody who's going through mental illness or something, that there should be, like, a team to kind of, like, deal with that ever so often just so we can kind of keep that out of the transit stations and get them the proper help and hopefully allowing other riders to feel safe. Also, I'd say asking the riders, like in general, what do you need to feel safer? Like just kind of having even like a public forum on that would probably be helpful. Back at the conference, there are
3: discussions about some actions being taken to make transit safer in Canada's urban centres. Here's Marco D'Angelo, the president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Association
10: giving riders the ability to take security into their own hands. And what I mean by that is that they're able to access real-time information from transit systems directly through social media. We do a lot more communicating directly to riders with respect to security incidences in real time, so that people are able to make decisions that are best for their personal safety. There's a lot of apps for smartphones that we've been creating with our transit agencies across the country. If they see something, they're able to say something. And then as transit agencies, we're able to dispatch our security to make sure that that rider's need is addressed in real time.
3: David Cooper has made 27 recommendations ranging from immediate, intermediate and medium term plans. But there is one thing for sure, transit professionals can't make urban transit systems safer alone.
4: We need help. We are transportation professionals. We provide a service from point A to B, and we need to get that help from folks that work in mental health outreach. We need to get that help to ensure that people have somewhere to go that's a safe place to stay. We need to get the help from provincial and federal governments to really get the access to funding so that we can provide a support and a continuity of care model. And these are things that are very new to transit agencies on their things. The transit agencies are very much aligned in the sense that they have to be part of the solution on this, but these complexities are way bigger than them. They're very emotional because it also rears the lens of people's thoughts on policing. It rears the lens of people's thoughts of how do you address addictions, public safety, and it is something that You do need a partnership-based model, and it's something where these incidents have really shaken a lot of people, and also frontline staff. Like, we talk a lot about customer safety, which is very paramount, but we have to ensure that our thousands of transit workers are safe day in and day out going to work. There's a number of different complexities that also occur in that space as well.
3: Transit, as it's always been, is really about connecting people. Through our cities, by having more people aboard, the hope is that it will ensure more safe rides. The solution to make public transport safer for each Canadian city will look a little bit different. But the fact conversations are being had and incremental actions are being taken are hopeful steps for many transit riders. For Monocle Radio in Edmonton, I'm Sheena Rossiter.
0: And to Brazil now. It's time for the Global Countdown where I look at the top five songs of a specific country every week. And this time I go to my home country. All I can say, expect plenty of sertanejo music and a Brazilian cover of an Eurovision winning song. (laughs)
6: It is time for the global countdown with our senior correspondent and curator of Monocle Radio's music, Fernando Augusto Pacheco Keen eared listeners will know that that is the Brazilian national anthem. We are heading home for you. How long has it been? It's been a while. You know, of course, I know a lot about my
0: country's music, but I want, you know, I like to differentiate of other countries. But it's time to look back, especially because I spent three weeks there. So, of course, I was listening to many of the upcoming tracks, uh, Chris, as well.
6: Well, that's what I was also going to ask you, kind of how much how much when you are back there, do you listen to the music that is in the charts or do you have kind of other favorites that you wish were in the charts?
0: To be fair, I have no choice to some of those tracks because they were playing everywhere. They were playing parties in supermarkets. Uh, some of them are fun, but I have to say the, the Brazilian music industry is vast. So perhaps some of the music I like is not in the charts. Remember, it's a massive country. It's very actually difficult to be in the top 50. Uh, so perhaps it might not re- represent my taste in Brazilian music. But, you know, I think we're going to have some fun.
6: Do you have kind of alternative charts there as well that you like sometimes? Th- there
0: are all sorts of charts, and I think there are specific websites if you like electronic music, or perhaps even bossa nova as well, which had a minor resurgence. Perhaps not in this top five that we're gonna that I'm gonna show you right now, but you know, let's see.
6: Well, let's move on then to the first in the top five. What kind of style of music do we have here?
0: So this is sertanejo, which is the most kind of listened to music genre in Brazil, which is some sort of our version of country music. It started in the 20s, in the, well, when I say 20s, the 1920s in the countryside of Brazil. But the thing is with sertanejo, now it has like subgenres. Uh, mm-hmm. So, for example, the song we're going to listen now, it's part of the agronejo, which means... People in the agro business, they're very ostentatious. Perhaps it's something you can dance to as well. So it's not your traditional country music, the one I grew up when I was a kid in Brazil. So it's quite interesting to see this kind of uh, changing. Shall we, sh- should I give you a little taste there, Chris? Let's have a listen. And number five is Gustavo Lima and Ana Castella with Canudinho. Oh,
9: vontade de só boca, fica
6: you can dance it's country you can dance to in it's funny because I think I can compare that to my Austrian sort of folk music which also yes. used to be much more sort of softer and just traditional folk and then because of appreci and all of that has gone very dancey which is very similar to this
0: absolutely and the lyrics are a bit silly oh I wish I was that little straw and satiate my thirst slowly going round and round in your mouth a little <laughs> wet yeah <laughs> it's alright I, I like to show you know our international listeners who perhaps don't understand Oh, the lyrics there. I appreciate that. <laughs> that's
6: that's very good of you, Faye. let's let's swiftly move on from there to number four,
0: uh, so number four, uh, this is has some touches of Sertanejo, but I think she's been known the singer as the techno melody uh, type of singer because so uh, we have a genre in Brazil called techno Braga, which is a very danceable kind of regional rhythm from the para in the north of Brazil. Uh, but then techno melody has some elements of that, but is a little bit more melodic, if I may say. And Chris, there's a funny one here. This song we're going to hear right now, it's actually the Brazilian version for Lorraine's tattoo, the winning song of Eurovision last year. Ah. When I was in Brazil, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I know that beat. What's going on? So she took it from this song? She took it from that song. I mean, it's not a direct translation. It's something they call in the music industry interpolation. So you have the same beat. But we've, you know, changing the lyrics here and there. I mean, I'm not sure about the copyright situation about this, but <laughs> let's have a listen. It's a very interesting one. It's Manu Batidão with Daqui Pra Sempre. <laughs> And you know, me as an Eurovision obsessive, to one of the most listened tracks in Brazil is actually a version of the w- the winning song. So it's all very interesting I, there, Is huh? there
6: going to be a copyright battle is the one question there that I definitely would have. The other one is just that doesn't sound like techno at all, frankly. Yeah, it's not techno, but um, I don't
0: know. They, they Melodic say techno. techno. Melodic techno, exactly. <laughs> I
6: mean, Which is it, better, because frankly, I hate techno, personally. See? So I'll take that. We
0: love inventing names for, for genres, actually. Well, talking about number three, actually, you have to be patient with me, because... There's so many artists in this track, but I want to mention all of them. So give me a minute there. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, it's long. Okay, guys. So it's DJ GBR, IG, Ryan SP, PH, Davi, uh, Luki Don Juan, Cadu, GH do Seven, GP, Trap, Lando.
6: Clearly none of those are get top billing, is that, oh is that what you're saying?
0: And the song is called Let's Go
6: 4. Shall we have a listen, Chris? Let's go for.
9: Let's <laughs> go, baby. Let's go, baby. Não queria antes Quando a vida não andava. Relacionamento
4: não se conta por aqui. A coração fechado e fechado tá minha cara.
6: I've just been told by our producer, Steph, that that song is 11 minutes long. We're not going to play all of that. 11 minutes and 33 seconds. And (laughs) it's fascinating
0: that, you know, in this kind of TikTok age where songs are becoming shorter, this is an epic song. I mean, look at the number of artists as well.
6: Are they all singing? Is that why you had to list them all? So we heard one of the many that you listed there.
0: They're all singing. And in the trap and fun community in Brazil, most tracks are kind of those massive uh, collaborations as well. And again, I was talking about about Agronejo being ostentatious. This song is very ostentatious. It's about that person, perhaps, who grew up in a favela and did well in life. You know, so apparently there's four letters that matters to them. Marijuana, women, music,
6: and money. I mean, that's not me saying, that's the the artist (laughs) That's the let's go for right there. There Exactly, exactly. Well, we are obviously going a little bit longer here because this is your home country, Faye, and we have so much information to get through that I know, and passion, but let's move on to number two.
0: Number two, that's a very interesting one as well. That's It's Sertanejo, once again, but it's a version of an 80s track by a singer, Tete Spindola. So, but Lawana Prado, she just released an album kind of celebrating the history of Sertanejo music, but she did covers of songs that are not necessarily Sertanejo, but then, so it's quite it's a concept it's a concept there Uh, and lawana has an interesting life story which i'll tell after we listen to this track let's hear lawana prado with me leva pra casa escrito nas estrelas (laughs) saudade And very quickly here about Lawana Prado, you know, she is in the very kind of macho world of sertanejo music. But besides, of course, being a female artist, she's also a lesbian. Uh, and, and she was saying, you know, I did feel prejudice in this community, but now it's getting better. So it's good to see that in such a genre, which was associated with men, now we have Lawana Prado there. So it's good, good, moves there in the In, Brazilian in a traditional
6: music. genre, and that was definitely a more traditional folky song, I would say, from that genre, I assume. Exactly. Let's move on to number one in the Brazilian charts.
0: We have a very romantic, well, romantic, more or less. It's about as a breakup song. You didn't know how to love me and you lost me, but my body still wants you. Well, that's just the translation of the song we're going to hear right now by Luan Santana and Ana Castella, number one, with Deja Vu.
6: Luan, it's you
7: who tem to ouvir.
9: That's
6: more of the rock ballad style, I would say. Is that common in Brazil? It is quite common.
0: And and she says, you don't have a heart. How come you want to care for my heart? She's right. <laughs> you know, go and a Castella, but yeah, Brazilians love breakup songs. I think more than than usual. I mean, there's always some cheating involved in the tracks as well. But you know, it's the country. It's the choice of my country, Chris.
6: Doesn't doesn't every country love a breakup song? Exactly. Though, to be fair.
0: You are listening to The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Since returning from the World Economic Forum, there are two topics of conversation the Davos team have not yet dropped, Christy's driving and AI. In a desperate bid to drown one of those subjects out, Monaco's studio director has summarized all you need to know about the future and safety of artificial intelligence as heard on the streets of Switzerland.
11: Attending my first World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos this year, I expected the small skiing town to be abuzz with appearances from heads of state and talks on democracy, sustainability and security. But walking down the promenade, it quickly became clear there was only one topic tripping off lips into eager ears – artificial intelligence and, to a lesser extent, blockchains. Standing in one spot, I was surrounded by signs emblazoned with names and phrases like This is Enterprise AI, Being AI First, and Blockchain Central Davos. Behind me stood the newest and busiest of the hubs, the inaugural AI House. Despite it being one of the physically largest venues on the street, getting inside was often a great task. The panels were fully booked a week ahead, and the ground floor bar space was always heaving with people networking or watching presentations. The curator, Hannah Brahma, explained what set AI House apart from all the other tech hubs. This is really a technology that's going to impact us all. And making sure that
1: there is enough like representation and that people can kind of interact with a topic that's going to significantly impact and touch their lives And that's why, for example, like you said, it's hard to get into the ground floor, but that's also because we keep it open to the general public. And that's important to
11: us. With the words significantly impact their lives echoing around my head, I thought of recent headlines extolling the dangers of the technology, the warnings of AI dismantling democracy, sowing lies and division, not to mention outskilling us in almost every industry. But this wasn't some sort of doom and gloom fest. Rather it was an education of the lesser known but equally important virtues. I suppose the Luddites of the industrial revolution were valid in their concerns over its impact on their lives in the short term. But when you look at the way it changed the broader world, perhaps disorder does always bring progress. Charles Adkins, newly appointed president of Hedera, a digital public ledger platform, explained to me how we are entering into the third revolution of the internet and how tools like blockchain and tokenization are steering the way.
7: Web 1 was really kind of publication. You could create a web page. You could write essentially an online newspaper, an online magazine. The second was people could interact with each other. So Web 2 was really kind of that social revolution, mobile revolution, where now you have applications where we can send messages to each other. I can post my own content. And then Web 3 is you can still do the reading. We can communicate. We can write our own content, but now we actually have ownership of that content. Artists, for example, you see this a lot with NFT projects. They'll create artworks and they'll put those on a marketplace. They sell those artworks and then they receive you know, the value from that. The interesting thing is that with tokenizing that artwork, if that's resold again, you also are still entitled to a royalty of that through the smart contract. So I make the analogy of if Pablo Picasso's family was still... Earning royalties every time one of his artworks were sold at an auction, they would still be very wealthy. But unfortunately, somebody buys that original artwork, if it's passed to a secondary market, that family never receives any of that benefit ever again.
11: And while a lot of that might not be relevant to everyone's life, Rasmus Rota, co-founder of Morantix, an AI investment platform, divulged just a few applications they're invested in that will have a positive impact on us all.
12: One of our companies, Vara, is using AI to detect breast cancer, and it's already running close to 70% of cancer screening in Germany and many other places. And ...finds much more cancers and much quicker than any doctor... ...so really has a positive impact... ...because when when it's detected early, it's curable.
11: It certainly sounds enticing... ...and surely that's what revolutions are all about... ...ensuring accessibility to the masses, not just a few. As nice as all this sounds, however... ...we can't just trust that developers are going to always have our best interests at heart. There has to be a legal framework in place... But how do you regulate something that oftentimes isn't tangible and cannot be confined within dotted lines on a map? Kai Zena, Digital Policy Advisor for the MEP Axel Voss, is part of the team writing the EU AI Act.
12: This is a problem that the European Union struggles for years with. We have the things that in the mindset of many policymakers in Germany, for example, but also in Brussels, data flows are stopping at the border. Like you indicated, it's not the case. But what the EU is always trying to do is, uh, let's say, to have at least for the internal market, so all 27 member states, a kind of common set of rules. Even though in the digital field um, those rules are often more principle-based or a little bit high-level because of also what you said. Digital is something fluid. It's something that is changing, especially AI. It's something that can evolve because of different or new input data. They are creating different output and so on and so on.
11: But Rasmus worries that we may already be going too far with regulation. And it seems that, despite being involved in the creation of the EU AI Act, Kai might kind of agree going as far as to call the work in progress a compliance monster.
12: Yes, this is indeed one of my major concerns. One of the downsides of the negotiations was that there are a lot of very vague and sometimes also contradictory and overlapping text uh, passages uh, with other legislation and so on. And my fear is that especially smaller market players, SMEs, startups, they will often struggle to have really legal certainty if they want to bring one of their products or services, on the market because there is then maybe article 10 which is for them completely unclear does not now apply to me in all instances what I need to do etc. If standards are not there because standards could be the way out of that and could deliver the necessary uh, specifications then I think a lot of the smaller companies are rather doomed and they are having the decision either we are not innovating in AI because it's too risk Or we are buying very expensive uh, certifications, third-party auditing from Deloitte, Ernst & Young and all those companies, which of course want to have money for that. And this would then raise the production prices quite a lot. And again, would force probably a lot of market players out of the market, which in the end probably has one big winner, which is US big tech uh, firms. They have the money and everything.
11: Perhaps the Luddites had a point. After all, the technology that led Britain to the Industrial Revolution has ultimately led to an era of fast fashion and slave labor. But while nobody here has a crystal ball to see how all this will turn out, it seems that everyone is intent on not letting history repeat itself. For Monaco, at the World Economic Forum annual meeting in Davos, I'm Christy O'Grady,
0: And this is the week where the Oscar nominations came out. One of my favourite films this year, The Holdovers, was nominated for five Oscars. I had the pleasure to interview the film's director... Alexander Payne. The film is set in the 1970s. It follows three lonely people at a New England boarding school over a winter
6: break. Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully.
10: Filmmakers are always just looking for a decent premise. I just need a hook. I wish to hang the meat of the rest of the film. About a dozen years ago, I was at a film festival and caught a little-known Marcel Pagnol film from 1935, which had the same essential premise, not the same story at all. The the stories go in wildly different directions, but the premise was good. And I left the cinema thinking, oh, that's a good. I'll bet another movie could be made off that same general premise. But I didn't do anything with it for years until I met David Hemmingson, who had written a pilot, which I had read, that took place in a boarding school. So I contacted him and I said, Hey, I've read your pilot, would you consider writing a feature in that world? Because it was a world I myself didn't know, nor had I begun the research. It was a minor miracle finding David Hemmingson. What about the script? Uh, because you usually write the scripts for your own films. Well, how, how was your collaboration him? how did this work out? It was my first experience, let's say, directing a writer. I asked him if he would write a script based on a premise I gave him. We worked together for the general storyline, which is to say he proposed three, four, five different storylines, and I selected the one I thought was most interesting to me. And then as he was writing drafts or even sections of drafts, he'd run them by me and I'd read them and give notes or suggest this or that. And then when we had a finished script, I would do some rewriting myself and then give it back to him and a nice, it was a lovely collaboration between the two of us. And apparently something that you, I mean, changed a minor,
0: well, not a minor thing, but it's the decade, right? That is, you wanted the 70s, not the 80s in a
10: way. I didn't even remember that his pilot was set in the 80s. He and I just had this premise and we knew it couldn't be contemporary because there are no more single sex boarding schools. So it had to be a period film just mechanically. And then I've always wanted to start making period films. I haven't just, hadn't gotten to it yet. And the selection of 1970 just felt right to the both of us. It gave him tools to work with.
0: I mean, in the production design, cinematography,
10: even the way it was filmed, it felt very much like a movie from the 70s, but even the way you filmed, right? I mean, which I thought it was quite a sweet touch as well. Thanks for thinking it was a sweet touch. I thought it would be an interesting challenge to have the film not just set in 1970, but to some degree, made to look and sound as though it had been made in 1970.
0: What about the cast? I mean, of course, your relationship with Paul Giamatti. I mean, you reunited almost 20 years after, right, sideways. But what about the others? I mean, of course, Da Vinci has had an amazing performance. But one thing I was surprised, I just want to mention his name's
10: right, Dominique Sessol. Is it true that's his first time on screen? That's unbelievable. He had never even been in a short film before. That's crazy. This was his first time in front of a camera. But he was already, I mean, at his level, an accomplished actor. We found him in a high school, indeed, one of the very high schools where I shot the movie. So he was a star in their drama department, was applying to acting programs at universities. So that was his path, is his path. But I just feel very lucky to have found him. And what about Paul? How was it to reunite with him after 20 years, more or less? Ever since the last day of photography on Sideways, i had been wanting to work with Paul again and he with me. And so it finally happened. It might have happened sooner if I were faster with screenplays, but it hadn't. But it didn't happen. Alexander, something
0: we're talking <clears throat> off the record here, but you know, about the name of the film in several countries we're discussing. I mean, are you involved with any of that? I mean it's quite it's quite an interesting one. Like even I just came back from Brazil, it's called The
10: Rejected There was Rejeitados. yeah. That's, yeah I think are, are you interested I, in, in those? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I even get involved in uh the dubbing and subtitling scripts in Italian, Spanish, French. And German, I don't speak German, but I still worked enough to be able to figure out what was being said. But I take, we put so much care into the title of and the dialogue inside these movies that I can't just leave it to these other countries to wreck it. I hope they're not doing that. Just coming back as well from one of the film, I said the film was filmed like if it
0: was in the 70s. The score and the, the music was fantastic, and I think I hope...
10: This core would do well as well. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it was a long and uh, lovely collaboration among, a, we were a triumvirate, myself, Kevin Tent, the editor, and Richard Ford, the London-born music editor we've worked with for 25 years. So that's as we're figuring everything out. And then, obviously, the, the composer as well, in this case, a fellow named Mark Orton, who had previously done my film, Nebraska. Uh, 10 years ago. But it's a long, long process of seeing what's right for the movie, what supports the rhythm, what supports the comedy, what supports the emotion, without ever calling attention to itself. And then, of course, it with in this one, an additional element, which is uh, popular music of the period, both used both as score and as music that's being played by the characters. So it all took a long time, and you can get it in shape to where it works for the movie and then you're faced with the reality of what you can afford and then you have to switch things out even often at the last minute by the way we're here in England Labby Sifri are you familiar with him no so he was a an English singer-songwriter who came to prominence in the early 70s That's he's funny. still alive he lives in Spain he was a discovery for me, and now Rolling Stone magazine has done an article on him based on his presence in, on the soundtrack of *The Holdovers*. So, anyway, all along, a long-winded way of saying we put a lot of time into that, and if it works, I'm happy. Amazing, Alexander. Thank you so much. Thanks, for Thank you so much. Muito obrigado. De nada.
12: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100
6: different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
13: To find out how we could help you,
4: contact us at ubs.com.
0: We're back here with the curator. And as I said in the introduction of the show, we asked important questions here, like, who invented butter chicken? Monaco's Delhi correspondent Lindy Prickett discusses a legal row between two restaurant chains in India as they battle over who invented the dish.
1: It is a story that goes way, way back. Um, you know, it's funny because it's it's one of those things that if you were to ask somebody what their spaghetti bolognese recipe is, every family probably even in Bologna has a different version of this dish that probably goes back centuries. And that's really no different with butter chicken. Uh, that is, however, until this court case came up and people are placing times and dates to it. It is well known that butter chicken and makhani, dalmukin, or dalmukkanie, which means butter, so dal with lots of butter, they're both known as Northwest Frontier Province Food, and the main city in the NWFP is Peshawar, which is now in Pakistan up near the Afghan border. But this story goes back to British rule when there was no Pakistan. The Moti Mahal story goes, because there's two versions of this story, that kundan Law Gu- Gujarat created butter chicken curry in the 1930s when he first opened a restaurant in Peshawar, and that's why he lays claim to it. But that is not the story that a rival restaurant that only opened a few years ago, I might add, has. Their story is completely different. Should I go on and tell you about the other story? You can. Well, as I understand, stri- okay. it's partly that this is
6: the children, if you will, of a co-creator who are laying claim to the dish saying that there, I believe, is it grandfather or father that sort of <laughs> helped create this dish, but a yes. different date. That- I mean, it gets very confusing.
1: That- it does. It does get confusing. So, so Moti Mahal, the the restaurant, which is an institution here in Delhi, which has been around so long that even the likes of Richard Nixon and Jawaharlal Nehru have been to this restaurant. They claim it started, as I say, in Peshawar. But apparently, according to another family, the Diagon story is different. They say that they helped open the restaurant in 1947, Moti Mahal restaurant. That their Long lost family, not long lost, but past um, um, since um, um, deceased family member Kundan Lal Jagi, that had, he had partnered with Gujarat when he opened Moti Mahal. So he says, or his, his ancestors, his relatives say, hey, he was in the kitchen at the same time the dish was invented, and that gives them the right to also lay claim to being creator of this dish.
6: Now, Lindy, there is a to, as I as I read here, there is a two thousand seven hundred and fifty-two page court filing on this. I mean, I'm not expecting to have read all of that, but is that a normal amount for a court case?
1: <laughs> well, it is in a court case in a country like India that goes back. So th- this is a story that goes back so far and goes back, as I say, when there were different rulers and different jurisdictions. And, you know, maybe there's even a recipe or two thrown in there. Uh, I think the reason why the um, the the case is, is so thick is they've had to compile so many different um uh, claim um um stories and they're trying it's very hard to say when this first came about so there's a lot of different testimonies in there um and a, lo- a lot of passion as well has gone into this uh, particular court case so it is it is a recipe uh um for a lot of of masala and interest here
6: so a, a court filing that is both history and legal filing at the same time i mean just just one other thing lindy i mean is there Kind of a soft power aspect to this, I wonder. I've done a few stories on kind of culinary diplomacy over the last year. How, how big is butter, chicken and curry for India in general? Does the winning restaurant, the winning, the court case winner get the spoils, if you will, from this?
1: Well, I think the court case alone is getting a lot of interest, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little tempted to wonder how much of a PR interest is is there is in this particular story. Um, you ask about how popular butter chicken is, you know, it's one of those things that's at pretty much every Indian wedding in the north of the country where there's a lot of Punjabis and, as I say, people from the Northwest Frontier Province or their relatives. It's not so ubiquitous down south, but it's not to say that people don't like it or love it. But really it's actually a little bit on the non-spicy side. So it's it's not necessarily the staple household meal like you might think. But in terms of culinary diplomacy, oh, you know, India has enough of those. There's also a big debate that was raging, though it hasn't reached the court yet, over a dessert called rasgulai. And that is between two states in India that claim, states, so not restaurants, that both claim to be the... Um, you progenitors of this very sweet sweet syrupy but quite delicious dessert so um, the kitchen debates are definitely
5: fiery here
0: and more food here on the curator from sweet and spongy cinnamon buns with strong cups of coffee to fresh local seafood there's no shortage of culinary delights in oslo here Nora wanders the popular neighborhood of sanctans haugen to show us the best her hometown has to offer let's take a listen
14: Today I'm taking you to my hometown of Oslo, Norway, and the charming area of Sanktanshaven. Located just minutes from the city center, it is the quintessential Oslo neighborhood, with plenty of bygård, historic apartment buildings, excellent parks, and a great variety of bars and eateries. A day spent in this leafy neighborhood will give you a sense of Oslo living at its finest. To start our day, we need some coffee. Oslo is a city famed for its coffee culture, and if it's your first time, visiting barista Tim Wendelbo's roastery and espresso bar is a must. However, for a local cup at Sancton 7, the Italian-inspired Java coffee bar is a great shout. Order a cortado or another espresso-based drink, and if the weather permits, grab a seat outside for the perfect people-watching spot. You can also pick up a selection of baked goods, including a shillingsbolle, the Norwegian version of a cinnamon bun sprinkled with sugar and cinnamon on top. If you're in the mood for a stroll, take the cup to go and explore nearby Seven Park. The park is built around a hill, which is worth climbing any time of the day to enjoy amazing views of the city. A few streets down from the park is the bar and café Rouleur. Seemingly always busy, this local favourite is a great spot to both start and end your day with coffee served during the daytime and drinks on offer in the evening. The space also serves as a bike rental and repair shop, and they arrange bike tours of Marka, the large forest area surrounding Oslo, giving you a chance to explore what truly makes the capital unique as a city. If you are not a keen cyclist, you could hike in the Marka as well, or personally, I would recommend a swim in the Oslo Fjord as a great way to enjoy the close proximity to nature. Grab another strong cup of coffee for your adventure and pair it with a Norwegian waffle. The heart-shaped buttery pastry can be found at most local bakeries and kiosks around town. Bonus points if you have your waffle topped with a traditional treat that is brown cheese. A caramelized cheese made from the whey from goat's milk. It can seem off-putting to the uninitiated, but the sweet flavor and creamy texture works perfectly on top of a warm waffle or any baked good. If it's too much for the palates, try the much-loved hiking snack Quick Lunch instead. A chocolate bar much similar, but far superior to a Kit Kat. Safely back on asphalt, once you return to Sanktan 7, not far from Rollør, you will find Merkur Bar. Tucked away on a quiet residential street, this Japanese-inspired bar specializes on natural sake as well as natural wine. With original dark wooden interiors from the 30s and 40s, and lamps providing a yellow hue that sparks associations to its namesake planet, it serves as a great atmospheric spot for a drink. In Fredensborg, in a street of all wooden houses, there's a quaint red house dating back to 1814, where you find one of my favorite spots in Oslo, Nektar Bud. This cozy wine bar has a menu that focuses on small or family-run wineries, but as exciting, if not more exciting than the excellent wine offering, is the selection of snacks and dishes you can order along with it. Fried chicken, pork turin pressed in-house, and a selection of Norwegian cheeses are all tasty bites, but the standout dish here is the anchovy toast. Nectar's version with shaved fennel, aioli, and pistachios offers an exciting flavor combination that really hits the spot. The version of a mac and cheese is another menu highlight I would recommend. It has become a bit of a cult dish in Oslo, with layers of leek and cheese sourced from local farmers. Now, if you're in the mood for pizza, I would recommend Tram. Here you can try delicious local iterations, such as a white-based pizza topped with reindeer carpaccio, pomegranate seeds, and red onion. Or a delicious five-cheese pizza with English cheddar, Italian mozzarella, grie, Gouda, and the award-winning Norwegian blue cheese Kraftkar. Hidden away on the floor above Tram is Bar Amor. The tiny restaurant with no windows is dimly lit and covered in plush red fabric, and it describes itself as an intimate expression of the crossover between Portuguese culture and Nordic cuisine. The kitchen is run by Carlos de Medeiros, who previously worked at Michelin star restaurant Maemo, and the menu consists of one singular, exciting and experimental tasting menu. Another great spot for dinner is the newly reopened Grotto, Situated in an old garage from the 1920s, it started as a pop-up wine bar in 2020, but recently changed into an intimate French bistro. The menu is small but tempting, with dishes such as chicken parfait with cornichot and mustard, and leeks with formdambar cheese and walnuts. The standout dish, though, were the escargot. Snails served on silky scrambled eggs, covered in a butter and chartreuse sauce, and topped with crunchy hazelnuts. As a main, you can choose between a selection of grilled meat or fish that is designed to be shared along with classic French side dishes. One of the best meals I've had in a while. Grotto seems to be the current place to be seen in Oslo. When I was there, I was lucky enough to spot contemporary artist Ida Ekblad at one of the other tables. Finish your day with a cocktail at one of the smallest bars in Oslo, the Dangerous Club. Run by the same people that are behind Grotto and Merkur Bar, it has been called the listening bar, boasting a great sound system and amazing acoustics. With a 70s vibe and vinyls decorating the walls of the intimate space, it is a great place to round up the day with a classic cocktail or perhaps one of their signature concoctions. Finally, if you're feeling peckish for a late night snack, do as the locals do and pick up a hot dog from a kiosk. I prefer mine wrapped in a lumpa and a region potato tortilla and topped with mustard, fried onion, and shrimp salad. Enjoy whilst walking home through the quiet streets of downtown Oslo. For Monocle in Oslo, I'm Nura Hol.
0: You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. We head to Paris from a zone objet now, and this time we meet South African designer Yaniv Chan, as well as Kevin Frankentown, co-owner and creative director of furniture brand Lemon.
13: I think that what we do, what I try to do, is I try to find designers that are, I'd say, progressive in their nature and the way they approach design. So I'm looking for designers that have got their own point of view, that are trying to put pieces out into the world that have a, a reason for being. Because I think what happens a lot of these days in design is someone sees something, it is on trend, or maybe, and they say, oh, let me do a version of that, or let me do a different material. We're trying to bring things to the world that are unique with our point of view. It often comes, I'll say to you and there, I'm looking for a new sofa for my house, let's work on something together, something that's comfortable.
8: And then I'll design it for my house, yeah. and what makes me comfortable, and I think that's the kind of, whole organic approach so do we will we find a lot of your own furniture in your own home (laughs) absolutely you have to you really have to live with the stuff. we have a lot of kind of house parties which tend to get wilder and wilder the longer we're in Turin you've got to see how things wear with a glass of wine on them with all the practical side of the beautiful kind of things that create and design. I think another huge thing about our design process is the nostalgic element. A lot of the pieces here are all reminiscent of a childhood memory and then retranslated into something modern and something contemporary. What we often say to ourselves is the world doesn't need another chair. Why does this piece have a reason for being? We scour the internet and we scour first dibs and see if there's anything like that prior to actually making it. And I think that makes the process much more fun and.
11: I'm curious as well, we sort of talked off air about the fact that you've got production in all different parts of the world. Is that dictated by the fact that you're looking for the best people to work with as well and not hamstring yourself?
13: What we found is that we don't work well with factories that mass produce. We work well with smaller, generally family-owned type of production facilities where the relationship is strong because we don't like to bounce around. We don't have a massive sourcing team so we, we look hard to find the correct factory for the product that have the correct artisanal skills that we can design with them over time. The factory has got to play such a big part because there's so many ways to make something. And it's a collaboration, it can be a long-term relationship. We find soft seating, for example, brilliant in the UK, marble brilliant in Italy, woodwork amazing in South Africa, so it really depends. I'd rather find the right factory for the product, it's challenging, but most importantly is we become friends with our suppliers.
11: When you're, you're designing, are you thinking about those, those factories or where those people are going to be or is it uh, something that comes after?
8: At first, we weren't thinking at all and I yeah. think that's really what challenged us and especially with our wooden pieces. We kind of thought all the best wooden pieces come from Scandinavia and whatever and then We kind of tapped into this uh, Cape Malay world of the the craft that the Cape Malay people brought to South Africa. And they brought this huge woodworking talent, which has been passed down from generation to generation. And that's something that we were able to discover through this process. But we did certainly desire the piece first prior to actually going on that voyage. I think that we've
13: learned a lot by making. We've made a lot of expensive mistakes. Neither of us are industrial designers, so which I think is actually a good thing. We understand design. You know, as an interior designer, I'm a graphic designer. But as we make, we've learned how things work, and we spend a lot of time in the factories. It takes a few rounds of a product uh, to, to get it right. Designing by doing, for us, works well.
0: And finally, here on The Curator, will 2024 spark a champagne comeback? Following a fall in shipments of champagne last year, Master of Wine Patrick Schmidt discusses what's in store for the French fizz in 2024.
5: Just explain to us in numbers, how big was this drop?
2: Uh, So it was almost 30 million bottles. Uh, So it was a significant decline for champagne in a single year. Um, But uh, just to say that that was a volume drop in shipments so that's not actually reflecting entirely sales it's the amount of champagne that leaves champagne Um, but in value terms the region only dropped around the estimates are one and a half percent so it's still almost at a record in terms of turnover
5: so there's a huge amount still coming out of uh coming out of champagne and and moving away because when you said 30 million bottles i wasn't entirely sure how how compared to the, the overall um Transportation of 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 champagne. This is so. When you say there's a there's a boom at the moment, when people do talk about a a drop in global shipments of champagne, should we be genuinely wringing our hands about this?
2: (laughs) Uh, Some of the champagne world may not see a slight, well, quite a quite a big decline in last year. They may not see it as such a bad thing. I mean, what we had was we had a kind of what people are calling a post COVID euphoria. Uh, so when COVID, when the pandemic started spreading, particularly across Western Europe and the US in early 2020, understandably, people didn't want to buy champagne. There was nothing to celebrate. They were locked in their homes and sales literally fell off a cliff. So we went from about 300 million bottles that were being sold, shipped worldwide in 2019 to below 250 million in 2020. So there was this big, big decline. And then it picked up. Um, 2021, we saw a lot of growth. The markets bounced back really quite suddenly and, and more than the champignois expected. And we were shipping, the region was shipping 320 million bottles and they thought, wow, this is amazing. Is it going to continue? 2022, all the markets were, were opened up and Champagne is really consumed globally and we had yet more growth on top of the growth in 21 and champagne reached an almost a record level where it got to 326 million bottles and if you speak to the producers there in 2022 they're all looking at this growth and thinking when's it going to end this can't continue and also they didn't have the supply for it to continue because champagne is a fixed area. They can only make so much. So they were sort of sitting on their seats. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And 2023 last year is when it happened. But actually what happened in the first six months of 2023, things looked all right. People were still ordering champagne and the champagne was saying, well, there's a bit of a decline, but it's not too bad. Uh, it's going to be a soft landing, and then the second half of the year, things really fell away quickly. And I think there are a lot of number of reasons for that. One is cost of living; price increases have been really large on champagne, in line with other goods, but but particularly with champagne because it's on top of already a high base price. Uh, and then consumer confidence. And I think November was a really bad month for shipments of champagne. And I think people aren't saying enough about it, but it could be connected with the Israel crisis. Um, and people just didn't feel like like clinking glasses at the end of the year.
5: So if we are not drinking champagne in the quantities that we used to for the reasons that you just described, are we just drinking less in a less luxurious manner or are we switching to other products and other drinks instead that that, that keep the spirit up but without those, that price tag that you just described?
2: Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a really... I mean, the people are generally drinking a bit less, Uh, They are being very careful about what they buy. And let's face it, you know, expensive booze and champagne is not a necessity. Uh, So, yeah, I think they are. I mean, you know, one of the contenders to champagne, apart from not drinking at all, is things like fine rosé, celebrity back rosé, you know, in cool, sexy packages, beautiful bottles, pale pink and pretty is doing very well. Uh, Other sparkling wines are doing well, like premium carver is doing well. I'm seeing in the supermarkets. Um, Cremence from France and English sparkling in fact English sparkling had a really good year in 2022 partly because there was a little bit of a shortage of champagne and prices went up a lot and there wasn't enough on the shelves and people switched to other fine sparkling wines of which our home product is very much one
0: and that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator the show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me Fernando Augusto Pacheco Join us again next week and thank you for listening.